Rob, what are some of your fondest memories over the past five years of this company that's now called ProEDU? Weekends. Well, weekends? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, weekends where I get to spend time with my family and I'm not working. I, the, the best time. You've Absolutely. had weekends? I've been working seven days this whole time and you've had weekends? Oh, man, you weren't supposed to find out. I blew it. Damn it. Oh. That was my plan. Well, I, I guess there's that. Now that's, Now this is the intro commercial. Great. I, you want to know what's been my favorite part? What? Working with other photographers. Yeah, anyone's in particular? All of them. All because, of them. It, you know, as a photographer, we are often very isolated. We work in our studio. A lot of photographers just work out of their home. You don't get a chance to hang out with a group of other photographers. For me, I have loved watching and learning from the photographers that are our instructors. Um, it's fascinating. It's great to see what other people are doing, the way they think, the way they handle their camera, the way they handle their light, uh, and what they what they do to approach each subject. I love it. That's been my favorite part, honest to God. I know. It's been fantastic to work with such a wide array of photographers that do every genre and really capturing what they do, how they do it, and then putting that into the highest quality form of education that we could have come up with. We right. didn't We didn't do it the easy way. The easy way no, would have no. been to film a workshop. Right. We filmed these and planned them like we would any other commercial production yeah. to create the best quality. And holy cow, was that way more expensive to do? Uh, like all the money? Oh, man. Yeah, it's been way more expensive, but it I think it's worth it because, one, we really take what's in the wheelhouse of the instructor and we break it down into a curriculum, right? Like really get a sense of what they do, but how are people, how are people, how our audience needs to digest it yep. so that they can best put it into practice. Uh, and then film it like a documentary slash David Fincher film. And that's not an easy trick. No, it's not. It's taken us way longer which means we, we don't release things as quickly as, let's say, no. other platforms. But when we do, it's much more enjoyable to watch. The quality is insane. You and know what else the, is really amazing about it? What? The instructors really get worked. Like, they don't realize how much work it's going to be, and they all come out of here after a week of filming with us, like, just drenched in sweat. Yeah, like seven pounds lighter because they've been yeah. sweating the whole time. But they all need to get a little bit we, leaner and we, meaner, and we, we give that to them. We put them through the paces, and we make sure that they reveal every single secret of all their— All the secrets. All the secrets. You're not leaving until we have every single secret. Mm -hmm. Every one. Remember that one instructor we beat? Uh, I, uh, no, we should In the basement. Don't talk about that. Yeah, don't talk about that. All right, so now that we have this huge collection of the world's most curated library from Working yes. Pros, we made it accessible to everyone— I know. That was kind of crazy. So monthly or yearly, you can subscribe and get access to everything. Which is nuts. You're not just buying one tutorial all the time. You get it all. For one low cost. Yeah, for a deal. I bet people spend more on coffee than they do on education. Oh, no question. No question. And that's actually not a good idea because coffee doesn't increase your brain flow. You no, know, it doesn't no. make you smarter. No, it doesn't. It just makes you think make, faster and pee, quite honestly. Makes you pee a lot. Right. Diuretic. So if, if you're a photographer or if you're thinking about becoming a photographer or you just want to learn about the best photogra photographic processes in the world, yeah. go to ProEDU.com. Absolutely. You can watch all of our trailers. You can watch a lot of free content. Mm -hmm. And you can get Rob Grimm's free beer tutorial Yeah, for nada. It was pretty nice of me to give that away, wasn't it? It was. And we didn't just make something that was going to be free. We actually filmed that like we were going to sell it. And we decided afterwards that it should be free. Yeah. Because we wanted to give everyone. Actually, this is Sean's fault. Sean convinced yeah, me Sean, to do this. Yeah, he did. He did. Okay. So Why didn't I fire him right then and there? I don't know. You should have.
Welcome to the Pro EDU Podcast, where Rob and Gary talk and drink with your favorite photographers. So grab yourself a cold sarsaparilla and saddle up. In this episode, we're sitting down with the man, the myth, and the legend, Art Wolf. Have you ever had an intro like that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably like yeah, every the time. Fourth one today. <laughs> yeah. The fourth one today. <laughs> Damn. All right, I'm so glad we were able to catch up with you. We've been following your work for a long time, and you've done so much in the photography industry. So thank you for finding the time to sit down. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. And alongside Rob Grimm, I'm Gary Martin, and I'm you're listening here. to the RGG EDU podcast. As always. So, Art, let's let's go back okay. to the early days of baby art, getting into photography. <laughs> How did it happen? When did it happen? Yeah, it's pretty clear for me. Uh, the first shot I ever took, I actually found, and it's a shot of a moose in a lake in Canada, and I was in a uh, canoe, yeah. and I had a little brownie fiesta, a little plastic camera, and you would just, you know, uh, wind it, and it would slowly go from one to two, and then you'd be ready to shoot. But that, I think I was 13 years old. Wow. But then that's pretty much it for photography for quite a while. I actually was a art major at the University of Washington, and during those college years, I was studying art history, but also uh, getting a degree in fine art painting, but on weekends I was climbing and leading climbs up Mount Rainier and a uh, host of the other mountains of the Northwest. And it was then that I got a camera at Christmas and started documenting those climbs. And so whatever I was learning during the week, I was applying to my photographic compositions. And by the time I graduated seven years later, my allegiances had shifted from yeah painting to photography sure. so that's how baby art started <laughs> <laughs> how many times have you climbed mount rainier five any close calls any crazy things happen no i've lost quite a few friends in the uh to climbing but not on rainier on the himalayan peaks or other cascades yeah what other mountains have you climbed I was on the first Western expedition up the northeast ridge of Mount Everest. Oh, wow. And that was in the winter of 84. So I didn't get to the top, nor did I ever have that desire, but I was the expedition photographer. So I got up to the North Pole, which is 25,000 feet, and that was plenty high for me. Yeah. yeah. What was it like training for that? Uh, you ate, ate a lot. So you went over Chubby, and over the course of the three months that we were on the mountain, I lost personally 45 pounds. What? Good Lord. In one week? No, in no. three oh, months. Oh, three months. So you're up on the mountain for three months and lost. Yeah, I mean pounds. you're wow. you're above the death zone, which is sixteen thousand feet, which means you cannot. Nobody can survive endlessly above sixteen thousand feet. You're just losing calories. No matter how much you eat, you're losing calories because you're burning it up. And I actually got anorexic. I could really tell that my desire to eat was waning and actually i deliberately lost weight just to see how much i could lose oh my gosh oh god that's crazy what, because what? if you're not hungry if you're not compelled to eat there's no reason to eat and the food was really bad yeah what kind of food was available cans we brought cans oh. of beans and cans of corn and cans of spaghetti and stuff like and that, that. stuff's heavy too actually yeah well <laughs> we drove into base camp and we also had yaks that helped carry weight up uh, after we arrived, the British SAS came in, and they were attempting the North Face, and they got wiped out by avalanche. So they, as they evacuated and we helped uh, evacuate them, they gave us all their food supplies plus what they call the Queen's Brew, which was 151-proof rum. 
Uh-huh. And you haven't gotten drunk until you've had a taste of uh, so 151 proof while you're becoming at 16,000 yeah. feet. While you're becoming anorexic. Jeez. Exactly. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's a like, high. That's like absinthe, isn't it? Isn't absinthe somewhere up in the Yeah, I was absent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so, Art, you've been traveling for so long and, and to so many countries and doing so many projects. How do, how do you really describe yourself as a photographer? You know, I... Uh, I, I say to people that it's not even an occupation, it's life. Every, virtually everything I do is related to how I live. I mean, my entire house is so uh, in sync with how I live my life. It's filled with artwork that I've collected throughout the world. I've worked on a garden that is filled with waterfalls and bonsai trees. And so everything, I've integrated my life and my well, my life and everything I love into the same thing. So it's not like I'm going to work. It's just I'm living the life. Yeah. Does that make sense or am I just rambling like an old doddering fool? <laughs> kind of both. Yeah. <laughs> well, that happens. <laughs> it does happen. That's allowable. Talk to me about your Zen garden. What's that look like? Well, you know, I spent a lot of time in it. I uh, I just love after spending, you know, two days flying home from uh, Johannesburg, for instance, you're kind of confined to rows of of confinement or in lines endlessly to get uh passports cleared and 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 so when i get home i know the staff never relies on me to be in the office that first day i'm in the garden getting dirt under my fingernails and uh, i've transformed a garden that was just flat grass into something that looks akin to a cross between a japanese garden and a alpine zone of the west and so all the trees are all bonsai. The entire yard is covered in moss. I brought in a hundred tons of granite, and hundred tons of granite. Hundred tons, tons of granite. How big is your backyard? It's it's a yard that surrounds it's the like house. Seventy three acres. <laughs> it feels <laughs> like that. When I'm on my knees pulling out invasives, it seems like seventy three acres. But in fact, it's. Uh, I don't know how big the yard is because it slopes down on all sides, and I have this amazing view of Puget Sound and the mountains. And I can see orcas from my bed, which is always what I find amazing because uh, about once a month, the pods of orcas come down from the San Juans and they come right in front of the house. That's crazy. That's cool. How long have you been gardening? Like, and what got you into it? I came home from Everest and I bought this old house that nobody wanted to buy. It was built in 1910 and covered in English ivy. Nobody could see the house. I mean, literally, you could not see the house. Well, it wasn't awesome. I knew the, the house needed a lot of work, but the view was unbelievable. But it was also within the city limits of Seattle, but surrounded in trees. So it was like buying into a piece of country right in the... It sounds uh, like an nobody wanted piece it? of property. It's a beautiful piece of property. Man. So now there's garden tours in the summer. There's like 2,000 people that will come through the garden uh, as a fundraiser for the West Seattle Garden Club. So I always say, I, okay, we can do that. Yeah. Had it been abandoned if it was covered in, in ivy? It was uh, owned by an older lady who now, in retrospect, was younger than I am right now. <laughs> but she had, yeah, she had given up. I mean, it's yeah. a lot of work to maintain an older house. Yeah. And I've basically uh, put on a modern kitchen, redid the whole upstairs put French doors on and a surround deck. So I've taken the bones of the old house and maintained it because it's uh, got hand-hewn cedar beams throughout. It's got Siberian oak from uh, the turn of the century. 
but it's a great warm house. Yeah, and like I open right the house up to a lot of fundraisers, gay rights groups or particular political affiliations. I open the house up so they can do their fundraisers there. That's great. So in the earlier days when you were trying to make it as a photographer and you know use that as your title, who were your clients? How were you making a living and, and earning uh, in the industry? Right out of college, I uh, the, the simplest thing is to make prints of your work and find somebody that would put them on their walls and try to sell it. I mean, that's the most obvious, or at least it was back then. At the time. Yeah. And so I, I got my work up onto the walls of REI and North Face and Eddie Bauer and all these outdoor-related stores. But REI became a really great place because there were so many people coming through. Yeah. And so initially, I started selling artwork. You know, I framed and matted just as I had been doing with my paintings, and they started selling. So I made enough money to actually put down a down payment on a house. But then I started, uh, one of my close friends was dating the former secretary to a National Geographic editor, and that gave me entree to Geographic. So I started doing assignments for them and Audubon Magazine, Smithsonian, all these outdoor or nature-related magazines. Yeah. So were you self-funding? If you had to have the work to sell it, were you self-funding your own trips yeah. and traveling? Yeah, and I still do. I, you know, Whatever little bit of money I can make from that, I used it to either upgrade my equipment or go on a trip. Yeah. So, yeah, I, unfortunately, there's no rich relatives I'm aware of, and my family had no money. And so what that gave me then was this work ethic that I don't mind doing. You know, I, I work seven days a week. I yeah. never take time off, but I love what I do. So what were those first early trips that you went on that you were able to capture these images on? Yeah, I uh, first started when I got my first car. I started, you know, exploring the nearby Cascades and the Olympic Mountains. And then as I got older and had a little more money, I would explore the West Coast and then up to Alaska. And eventually, then I started going overseas. And so, little by little, I just built up a, a career. How difficult was it to plan some of these, particularly the overseas adventures? when you didn't have access to internet and a lot of the, the things that are so readily available now. I mean, you can find information about anything you want right That's now. That's such right? a perfect question because it's exactly what people don't understand, that when you were doing a story for National Geographic or Smithsonian, most of the work was up front, trying to mm -hmm. figure out where, how, once you're there, how to get around. And uh, it was just through perseverance and faxes and things like that that we could eventually find somebody that could speak English that possibly knew somebody because I never ever was young enough that I could arrive at any destination and figure it out because money and time was critical even mm -hmm. early on and so before I would arrive I was pretty much on board with whoever was going to meet me at the airport and take me off but that took a lot of time you know upfront timing how, how much assistance did the magazine give you or was it just like all right here's what you need to go do now go figure it out on your own that's exactly it they had no there was no they assistance. Had no connections they had no assistance and so once i st i was doing a book project for national geographic on national parks of russia and that was the first time i had to hire somebody because i was now getting enough print orders that i needed somebody to man the phone and then that person hired the next person who hired the next person and then at one time, I had had probably 11 employees wow. until 2008 hit, and then everything crashed. You know, the internet, 
leveled the playing field in terms of being represented uh, on a commercial level, meaning stock agencies rather than, I never really took commercial assignments. You know, nobody ever hired me to shoot something for a product. But I was making a lot of money through stock at that point. Right. Or selling prints or posters or, you know, you piece together a career. But when I hired my first employee, then I started using those people to help me figure out where I needed to go and how, and once I got there, how I would build a story. So how much how much time went into planning versus the actual trip? I think most of the time went into planning yeah. and long-term planning. For instance, I did a book called Tribes, and we were going into the deepest part of the Amazon, into remote cultures. And, you know, they're in the country of Brazil, they don't want you in there. You know, mm-hmm. they, they don't want to have to deal with that. A liability for them. Well, and in fact, they were great about that because they had an organization called FUNAI, which was trying to protect very vanishing cultures from people like me. You know, and right. yet, and in Venezuela, it took us three months kind of going back and forth with the government to gain access to another very remote tribe. But over the years, we kind of got to all the places I wanted to go. I'm curious about the business relationship with someone like National Geographic. If you're sent on an assignment, you have to figure out most of it. You Like, they're not really assisting you, but they're putting you out there to, to go do something. How much of the work... Do you have to turn into them versus be able to keep for yourself for stock or your own usage? Well, it's the exact reason I ne- I stopped working with them. Yeah. Uh, because when I did a couple stories for the magazines and then a book, and they would pick the best photos out of a shoot and then own it. And if you're trained in art history and all that, you owned your copyright. And the whole idea of somebody else own- owning the work I was creating, even though they were paying me properly – I could never get over the fact that they would then own it, and I couldn't do any with right. anything with those photos. And at that point, I started really shifting my attention to working on books rather than magazine articles. Right. And that's the trajectory of my career for the last 30 years. Right. But at least you felt that they were paying you properly at the time. It yeah, wasn't they like were. you were getting raked over the coals and losing your, that's right. your rights. That's Is right. that still the case with National Geographic? Or? I don't even know at this point because it's it's gone through many uh, – Changes since then, and yeah. the most recent is Fox bought them. Yeah, so many and so new magazine editors came in, and you can see finally the, the, the change in the stories that they attempt to do. They're much more uh, modern stories. Not, I'm not uh, dismissing the articles that they did do, but it was very centric towards natural history. Yeah. But now it's about gender or th- things that they would never uh, uh, tackle as a subject, they are doing it now. Yeah. Going back to the topic of the organizations that try and prevent people like you from documenting, why do you think that is? They, Oh, well, FUNAI in particular. Uh, there were a lot of uh, miners and loggers going into the Amazon without anybody watching, and they were slaughtering the, uh, the, the people that were living there just so that they could gain the, lo- uh, the land and mine it, oh, okay. and so... Oh, so not Funa- photographers in, no, in no, particular. No, 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 but, you know, if everybody and their camera wanted to go down and document a vanishing tribe, it definitely would vanish within a year because yeah. it's our germs, it's our exposure to them yeah, yeah. that would absolutely... Or, or the people that generally... 
and they they're, they think they're doing a good thing, but they'll come into a remote culture, and before they leave, they feel so sorry for the people living in skins or feathers or whatever they, their wardrobe may be, but they leave T-shirts and hats, yeah. and they're just mm-hmm. degrading their tradition. Yeah. They're yeah. accelerating the uh, demise of their culture. And so when I would go in with my TV crews, I would say to everybody on the crew, we leave no trace whatsoever. Yeah. Nobody needs to know we were there. We can tell their story without leaving debris. What, yeah. what did you have to do to protect them? Because if, you're, if you are aware that it's your germs that come in and can, can affect them, how, one, how do you even gain that knowledge? And then what do you do to protect these, these tribes and the people that you're wanting to document? Hand sanitizer, Rob. Duh. Hand <laughs> sanitizer. <laughs> you know, um, I don't think that there was a culture that we went in that had not had outside contact. You know, mm-hmm. anthropologists had been in those villages and so a certain amount of immunity to the Western uh, things that we have on our body that would be innocuous to, that, to us mm-hmm. might, in fact, be uh, catastrophic to them. The, the, the thing that Funai has done a really good job, getting back to that organization, is they have forbidden contact with the tribes that remained uncontacted. And oddly enough, in 2018, there's still tribes in the Amazon that have never had contact with the outside world. How do they know that? That's almost mind-boggling. They know that by aerial surveys and the reactions of the people on the ground. They're virtually shooting arrows into the air at helicopters or planes. Wow. That's that's crazy. Yeah. And there's probably another tribe down in New Guinea that uh, is the same way, or maybe multiple tribes. So there still is that, which is kind of cool when you think about Starbucks in every city around the planet, you know, that we live at a time where the world's being homogenized to know that there's still cultures or traditions that have remained intact. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about New Guinea for a little bit? Yeah. How many times have you been? Four. Four. And what was when was the first time you went and the last time you went? The first time I went was 1994. And then I uh, was working with a film crew from Sydney, Australia, that were uh, they created a series called Tales by Light, which is a Netflix original series now. Yeah. And they did two episodes with me, and one was in not only New Guinea, but Ethiopia, Kenya, Alaska, and uh, Uganda. Yeah. Uh, so, and that was probably about three years ago. Four Compare years. and contrast the first time you went to New Guinea versus now. Like, what did you see change? Okay, well, let's just talk about one thing, mud men. That's a group of people mm-hmm. that historically made helmets out of mud to look grotesque and fearsome so they can fight their warrior, uh, fight other tribes. Yeah. That was their MO. They were called the mud men. And when I first went there in 95... They had two holes for the eyes and a hole for our nose. Today, or when I was there three years ago, it's morphed into all sorts of adornment on the mud masks. And that tells me one thing. It's not so much influenced by Western culture, but all cultures evolve. You know, nothing stays static. And even though they may be technologically primitive, they're also modern human beings. And so changes and evolution of culture does happen, even in remote communities. I believe we've been in the exact same village in Garoka. 
Oh, yeah, that's right. Soroka. That's exactly right. I remember uh, I went to do a documentary on Sandro, and we might have been there at the exact same time because we were at the Sing Sing, I think, three years ago, and we were doing a piece on Sandro. And I remember watching your Tales of Light, and the chief, like the, the head guy of the Mudmen, came up in that. I'm like, holy cow, that's the exact same guy <laughs> that was shaking us down for money to film him <laughs> because they took us through the whole, um, you know, they let Sandro shoot a whole, uh, you know, portrait series in uh, in the village itself, and they did the whole ceremony for us, and we did video. And oh, nice! I remember just recognizing that same guy and being like, "Holy cow, it's the exact same person! What are the odds?" You know, small. It is a it is a small world. You know, I go back to Ethiopia after having traveled there twenty five years ago, and then about ten years ago, then five years ago. But I recognize the same people. You yeah. know, 25 years ago. And they probably the recognize people, you. And they do. And so that's pretty cool that the world isn't all that big that, you know, individuals can recognize you. Yeah. Do you have any close calls in New Guinea? No, but I have had three close calls last year. I Real mean, cool. it was a bad year for me in oh, wow. terms of drama. What uh, but I have never, just to end that, I have never really had close calls with humans. Okay. You know, I, I'm not a war correspondent, and I'm not intentionally going to be hiking the Syrian border anytime soon. So it's not people that have, you know, uh, put me in harm's way, but it's my own stupidity of uh, not uh, knowing the behavior of particular species. And last year was a really uh, weird year. A, I was in Chad in April, and it's 115 during the days and 95 oh. at night. Well, I'm from Seattle, and we don't do heat that well. <laughs> and so I'm laying on a cot in this primitive camp in a forest that nobody goes to. I mean, Chad itself is a really quiet country, but it's surrounded by really nasty people. John Juip is to the directly to the east in the Sudan, and they're responsible for raping and pillaging villages. But they also have gotten in a big way into poaching elephants for ivory, yeah. and they travel that through Khartoum in the Sudan and out to the east, into China and everywhere else. To the south is the Central African Republic. To the west is Niger and Boko Haram. And to the north, in the northern part of Chad, there are uh, small elements of ISIS. So it's you don't want to go too far. It wasn't humans that was a problem. It was there were... Insects that were carrying uh, flesh-eating disease. Oh, Jesus. That's what I got right now. Whoa. Really? Yeah, right. at this table with us. Whoa. So I'm being treated finally after a year. I mean, I was there a year ago in April, and I'm finally getting a handle on treating this stuff. So, so what are the side effects of it? Yeah, what does it do to you? Uh, big. <laughs> Lay it on me. Big open flesh wounds. That started slow, and I had no clue what it was. And it was after four months, it's like, these are not spider bites. What are these? And it took me until October to have samples sent to the CDC in Atlanta, and they finally came up with a diagnosis. And then finally I got the the only treatment I can do is get uh, something out of Israel to treat this. And that's arriving at my home on Monday. Could that have been preventable with a, an immunization? No. 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 Just... And I quite honestly knew what leishmaniasis was, which is what I've got. 
but I only associated that with Colombia and Venezuela. I had no idea it was all through. And there's all these different versions of it, but it's nasty stuff. And fortunately, I've got the least uh, invasive of it. In other words, it doesn't get into internal organs, which would cause death. Uh, but that was the least of my problems last year. I oh, had a, I was I, oh. I take a group of people every year up to Alaska, and I love nothing than to put them down in close proximity to brown bears, and to see them realize their worst fears is to be really close to a mother brown bear with cubs, and the bear is nonchalant, and it's 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 kind of a cathartic event because people that have read Alaskan bear tales have all these fears about ever meeting a bear in the forest. And yet after four days, the people are very nonchalant, as have I been over the last seven or eight years that I've gone up there. But last year, I was up there by myself, away from the group, about a half a mile. They had flown in earlier, and I came in late because of just space on seaplanes. And a bear came up behind me, and I didn't even know it was there. And I could feel the warm breath on the small on my back. And I turn around, and there's a 600-pound bear, like, right there. Oh, my God. Which is very different than seeing one 15 or 20 feet away. When they're right in your face, it's like, oh. And so I took a step back, and it took a step forward. And I thought, all right, that's not going to work really well. And I had nothing. I had no bear spray, no sticks, no stones, nothing. that uh, Because it was tender, there was nothing. It's just plants. Yeah. I had no tripod because I'm using, you know, a 1 to 400 now and a higher ISO camera. Normally, a tripod would have been a good thing psychologically. So I had a little backpack, and I slid it off and put it between my chest and its head. And then I reached down into my gut and came up with a volume of sound, which I don't think I could achieve again. And I roared at it and pushed my pack into its face, and I backed it up. And I kept doing that, and I was able to back it up about 10 feet and over the lip of the bank of the river. Did you push the bear off the cliff? I pushed the bear off the cliff. (laughs) Awesome. That is amazing. Totally awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking, this is really cool, except, well, am I going to survive this? What it was was a third-year-old cub, male. They're 600 pounds. They're called um, hooligans simply because they're like teenagers, the mother's probably swatted it several times. She's trying to drive it away so it'll become independent bear. Mm-hmm. They're ungangly. They're angry that the mother's rejecting them. Right. And now it's got a new play toy, which was me. And I knew that the bear was, if the bear was going to be aggressive, I would have already been dead. But that bear probably wants to play or interact, and it had no boundaries. And I had nothing other than my knowledge of you don't run from a bear. So I was I, I knew that I could probably intimidate it, and that's exactly what I did. And once I got it below the lip, I ran 30 feet because I was out of sight at that point, and I turned around, and I knew he would be up again, and he was right up, up on top of the bank. And by that time, 30 feet was far enough to break that concentration and that connection that he had. Oh, wow. And wow. then lastly, in September, I was in uh, Zimbabwe. I'm working on a book on elephants because – Elephants are being hammered right now. And so I was in Zimbabwe walking on foot in a forest with a really good, experienced guide. And a mother elephant charged from a long ways away. Oh, man. 6,000 pounds of fury coming right at you. (laughs) 
And we fortunately had this log that was on the ground, but the log itself had branches that had stuck in the soil like kickstands. And so otherwise, the elephant could have just rolled, rolled it, it past. But that tree held, and the elephant was like right there. And it was like, because we had seen lots of elephants in the previous two days, and they were all nonchalant, and I got great shots. But this one had 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 some sort of encounter with humans, and it was pissed off. And it just came without any hesitation. And when you see that coming, an uh, uh, enraged elephant coming that fast at you, you have no time other than to say the words that you would th- normally right. say. And so it was like, that was so lucky that we had that tree, and we were so lucky that after a second charge, she broke it off and then ran away. Man. How many people a year die from elephants? Well, more die from hippos and Cape Buffalo than elephants. But if an elephant chooses you, there's so little you can do. Done. Yeah, even if you're in a car. I mean, yeah, they've been they've turned over Volkswagen vans and killed people. So, what's in bear spray? I'm curious. <laughs> it's a pepper. It's like a cayenne pepper, right. and their sense of smell is so strong that it's a highly irritant. And the, one of the reasons that I don't care, uh, carry pepper spray is that the pilots hate that. Because if it goes off in a cockpit, you're going down. They can't see. They can't do anything. Oh, yeah. oh, so they want the you to put them into the pontoon. And I, quite honestly, have never dreamed about being killed by a wild animal. And so I never it never occurs to me to be in that kind of uh, mental Defensive state. Mode, yeah. yeah. And even at that bear, I didn't think I, I knew I was like, this is really weird that the bear's that curious about me, but I never thought I was going to not survive. So you coming. said you, you, you have never had a fear of being killed by a wild animal. Have you, have you had fears of dying on your trips? Are, do you, are you concerned about that? Or no, I never think about death. Yeah. I never do. You know, all the shit I pull off, all the stuff I, I do, if I knew, I mean, now I'm a, a little less apt to go to a place like Chad without at least putting repellent on my skin at night now because I never want to repeat what I've gone through for the last year. Right. I mean, the body, you, I mean, you get cuts and scrapes and you know, okay, in a week it's going to be healed. I've never had wounds that have not healed. So it's a little more uh, a learning lesson for me. Do situations like this slow you down at all? Or no. Or you still? No. I mean, I, I now know I'm a fast healer because I just had foot reconstruction on my left foot in December. And people, uh, my assistants had arranged for wheelchair access and everything else just to come here. But I'm walking. You know, I, yeah. I've got slight pain, but I, I'm probably four weeks ahead of the other person that would have had the same surgery. I mean, they cut my heel bone in half. They put in four screws. They put did a bone <laughs> graft, and they found a tendon, and apparently I had broken a tendon in my foot that keeps the whole foot together. That went away sometime in my history, and so over the last 10 years, I've been walking with a foot that's slowly pronating. And so I, I finally got it done. Art Wolf is the Wolverine I, of photography. Had so, you've had so much stuff happen to you in the last year alone. It's you know, I mean, th- but that's all in the last year. I have had a very, not benign life, but a pretty, I've never had malaria. 
and I've been in malarial zones most of my life. I've never really broken a bone in my life. I'm, hmm. I've, no, I've been pretty healthy all my life, but I don't dwell on the potentials of what could happen. Yeah. My staff gets really pissed off if I'm up on the roof with a blower cleaning my roof at my age. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I hear that. It's funny. Do you have a, a daily ritual that you stick to? Only The only ritual I have that's consistent is getting up and making a really strong cappuccino in my kitchen. I have a nice espresso machine. Yeah. So it's a ritual of grinding the beans and making the coffee. And I yeah. used to, I, Going to all these places with such unique food, how do you stay healthy? Do you bring a lot of food with you, or are you always? No, I, I pretty much eat what other people are eating, but I'm not intentionally eating insects. Yeah. You know how people will eat something really vile just so they can tell everybody they ate it? I'm not in that ilk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and all through Africa, it was colonized, and so therefore— you can have French food or English food or German food or whatever. Yeah, I mean, go. it's all pretty – Africa's food is pretty benign. You know, they eat rice, they eat beans, there's meat. Um, the Amazon, I would bring in my own food because there's nothing out there that you yeah. could possibly buy. So I'm sure you've met a lot of tribes and chiefs, and they've probably offered you some very unique things. What's the craziest thing that you've been offered to eat, and <laughs> did you eat it? Uh, well, the worst food, which is kind of synonymous with your question, was on our way into the base camp of Mount Everest in Tibet. This is the winter of 84. No, uh, very few Westerners had gone into Tibet, let alone crossed Tibet to go to Mount Everest. And in the small villages that we passed and we had to overnight, we ate things that I would imagine were rat. I'm sure was rat because there were tiny little ribs in the meat. And it's <laughs> oh, like, God. okay, what mammal is this small other than a rat? And so, and it was really bad rat. <laughs> <laughs> it was so, I would, that was part of losing all the weight. I just knew I didn't want to be hungry going out again. Uh, but to answer your question, seriously, I think uh, in the Amazon, they made a paste out of ant acid like a hot sauce, and I ate a little bit of that, and it was fiery hot, and it was like, okay, that's, that's about... That's enough. Yeah, that was enough. <laughs> I'm interested in the, the idea of ritual for you when you, t when you talk about having a good cappuccino at home. How much of your time do you spend on the road, and, and, and how do you balance a life at home when you're gone so much of the time? I think that's really, uh, a, that's a really good question, a really uh, salient question. I balance, I'm on the road on an average year about eight months, if not more. <sighs> so, I mean, just as, you know, I'm in my healing phase right now. Right. But last week I was in uh, South Carolina teaching. Uh, no, I was giving a keynote. Next weekend I'm in North Carolina teaching a full-day seminar. And for that now, I think through the rest of the year, every weekend I'll be gone and that doesn't mean it's just for the weekend. I mean, this trip, I'll be home in my own bed on Monday, and I'll be back in North Carolina on Friday. Mm -hmm. And that is a lifestyle I've evolved into. And so if you have that kind of life, you, you uh, forget about having tickets to plays or sporting events or any of those kind of things because right. you're you never going to be around for that. Right. 
I don't have the life that most people would want. I mean, many people say, hey, can I carry your pack? I want to do what you do. And I, I say that's really flattering, but no, you wouldn't. You would not want this lifestyle. Is it hard to maintain relationships like with your staff when Is you're it, gone from them for eight, eight months, just working with them but not because you're gone? You know, they pretty much run the business at this point. Yeah. They're very independent. There's two women that have worked for me for over 26 years, and one wow. totally uh, – and they have the ability to create contracts, sign contracts. And I found early on that I can't I, – I photograph squirrels for a living. I don't have the economy to hire or pay my employees what they're worth, mm -hmm. but what they get is the whole, whole satisfaction of running their own business. And so That's I very rarely interfere within their bailiwick of the office. I'm very much the boss, but I don't play that card only on occasion when it's necessary. Right. But most times I don't interfere with their own sense of creativity and and they love that. They love the independence. And they love the fact I'm gone all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty funny. Are there, are there things that you think you miss on life because you don't have that kind of planted, rooted, okay, I have a routine and a home that I'm in all the time? You know, I, I say to uh, – uh, just last week in South Carolina, there was a half hour after my talk where people just pitched questions left and right – and one guy got up and he says, what are your regrets of life? And I said, honestly, I don't even think that way. I, you know, I have done over 100 books. Even when a wow. book comes God, out, I'm not even a great person to work on a book with simply because I'm moving on to the next five books. You know, the publisher wants you to be promoting that book for the next five years. I'm already mentally moving on to the next great thing. And so why I say that and it's connected to the question is I have no regrets. I don't look backwards at all at anything. I'm only looking f to the future. I've learned lessons, but I don't dwell. I don't carry grudges. I don't have angst or anxiety over – certainly there's a lot of things I've done in the past that were not the best thing that I could have possibly had done at the time. But I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm just – moving yeah. forward how difficult was that transition for you when you when you went from working for magazines like nat geo to you decided no i'm gonna do books i'm gonna do my own books uh, how was that process what was it like to say okay i'm gonna be a book guy well you know I, I i cut off geographic early on simply because they were the only magazine that really wanted to own the work mm -hmm. as they would say we own the work smithsonian and natural history and uh, other magazines would be happy just to hire you and you would own the work and they would pay you for that. And so that transition wasn't as precipitous as it may sound, okay. but it was definitely moving in that direction. And so I love the fact that a book had the quality of presentation. More money was put into the quality of the paper or the inks. And again, uh, as a background in art, this is what you want. Mm -hmm. You know, you want your work to be seen and have longevity rather than to be the hottest thing for that one month and then be out of people's uh, attention. Over 100 books. How many more books are in you? I've got seven I'm working on right now. I can give you all the titles, but they're v very different. One's called Act of Faith, which not only looks at the world's big religions that I've largely shot already, but also voodoo and shamanism, and that will make that book distinctive and fun to work on. Mm -hmm. Um, Where did you go for voodoo? I'm go well, I've shot that in Benin and Togo, but I'm also going to Haiti 
uh, in Haiti, they've got, you know, the mud bathing and all that kind of trance stuff that's going to go on. And I'll go there next year, next a year from July. So, so all that tells you a, a little bit about me, too, is I'm extremely organized. I know where I'm going to be for the next two years. And I have to be that way because certain things happen if, if, if it's within the wildlife context you know, migrations happen or nesting season or, or, or all those things have kind of a timetable. But so do cultures and celebrations and things like that. So you kind of look at, you know, three or four years out and you start to plug in. And if you don't believe me, I could open up that little notebook right behind me and I have the next four years at a glance. Four years. God, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah, I have that's to be that organized. That's an amount of research, too, to, to know all those different components that are happening and be able to plug them into a calendar. It's like a chess game because yeah. I only have certain amount of years left in my life, and in many ways I'm racing myself to my own death, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd rather die working than, you know, lethargically sitting around in a sofa. And yeah. so my father lived to be 94. I'm in better health than he was at my age. And so I think I'll probably be working clearly into my 90s. That's fantastic. So yeah, where, I, where yeah. haven't you been? Um, Is there any place you haven't yeah, been? Yeah, there's a place that I've been trying to get to, and I almost got there. Don't it's tell called, me it's called Chicago. <laughs> it's called Socotra. It's an island that's halfway between Somalia and Yemen. It's actually owned by Yemen, okay. and Yemen stopped all flight service to there five years ago. You know, and it's a benign island but it is still owned by uh yemen and yemen's been in a civil war for the last two or three years and so why that island is i've got a book coming out this fall called i don't know what it's called it's about (laughs) trees of the world which sounds inordinately boring but i think it's going to be interesting but the most unique trees on the planet are on that one island because it's in the gulf of aden and no trade winds really brush by it so whatever is on that island is unique to that island. It's literally isolated because the seeds aren't blowing to. And they're extraordinarily the beautiful trees. How big is it? It's a hundred miles long. Hundred wow. miles long. So do you think you'll get there? And what? what will oh, take I definitely time? will get there. But I was almost on a cruise ship uh, owned by the Chinese, and it's a small cruise ship. And we signed up for early May, and then they came back to us and they said, "Unfortunately, we oversold it, and you're out." Ah, oh, son of a... Are you always traveling by yourself? Do you have someone that always goes with you? I hate traveling by myself. Okay. I had once did a book called Endangered People. It was published by the Sierra Club and sanctioned by the United Nations. And I went on a trip all around the world by myself, and I just said, never, ever again. So who goes with you? Uh, I have a long-term partner, photographer that lives in Thailand with his wife and kid. His name is Gabriel Jacon, and he comes... He'll be coming in. He comes into North America three or four times a year. So he's from, he escaped Romania in the early 80s, going up through the mountains of Greece and uh, Bulgaria and came to America, a professional rock climber, but also he lives the same lifestyle that I do. So my my staff can't even identify really what I do. (laughs) You know, they have, yeah, they, they have no clue as to my lifestyle. They have a bit of an idea, but unless you live it, you really don't. Right. They and, but Gabriel does, and he and I are lifelong partners. What are the, the keys to traveling that, that you've learned over the years? That 
Well, I think uh, taking pictures and creating photography is the lifeblood of it because that creative energy is – I love it. I mean I, I can't wait to take the next picture. But also, though I tell, my, I tell people I'm a functioning introvert, which I am, uh, I can get on stage and give a talk before 500 or 2,000 people and entertain them for two hours. But if I'm off stage and not on, I am so quiet. I can yeah. just sit in the corner quietly by myself without engaging. I'm not walking up to people and introducing myself. And I'm, I suck at parties. You know? <laughs> I'm going to be in the corner sitting by myself. Are you, you are you big into gear? Are I you was go, just gonna say no, no. Gear has changed just so much over the years. So have you found that the lightness of it now is, has it made it easier for you, or it or has transformed the what I shoot? You know, the digital technology has absolutely opened up the playing field and made it so much easier to be a good photographer. But it's still about being creative and seeing mm-hmm. things differently. Otherwise, there's a whole bunch of people that are really good, but standouts standouts is a little more difficult because they're shooting the same stuff that has been shot for the last 25 years and this is one of the reasons i'm touring america teaching a class called photography as art where i'm mining abstract expressionism and other art forms to create a a whole new visual vocabulary otherwise People are going to the Grand Canyon or Mount Rainier or, 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 and shooting the same viewpoint with better technology. And I think that's a kind of a hollow victory. So if you can shoot with new inspiration and new ideas, that is a good thing. But digital technology is absolutely uh, a great, great thing. I'm not on board with mirrorless cameras yet because they're still – a difficulty for people with my eyesight. I normally wear glasses to have to uh, use the EVF. Yeah, yeah it, that's a huge thing. But yeah. that someday I'm sure will be solved. Yeah. But not to have to carry film anymore and lead bags oh, for film. It's I mean, huge. What, what a huge boom! Oh, you know, I would I would empty my backpack of cameras and just put in rows of film that had been taken out of boxes, so I could put 300 rolls of film in my backpack. just to take it to Antarctica or Africa. And today, you know, a few flashcards. You're there. Did you ever lose any film? It's a sad story. I, um, the next to my mom's stroke, the worst day of my life, and I get angry and misty-eyed when I think about it. I was robbed in San Francisco after 30 days of hard work all through the Southwest. They took 600 rolls of exposed film, much of which were large format. Oh, man. They took all my cameras, all my clothes, wallets, everything. They wiped me out. But it was all about that film. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get robbed in person or was it out of a car? It was uh, parked in Japantown on a sunny Saturday afternoon. We stopped for lunch, came back, and there were piles of glass. As we're coming back to the car, I'm, I'm looking for the shine on my window. It never occurred to me. That in the middle of the day on a busy arterial that car boosters uh, would rob us, and they just totally wiped us out. And I was shooting Nikon at the time, and I said to Gav, we drove 1,200 miles north to Seattle, and the wind was whipping around our heads because the windows were out of the car. And I said, we're going to call Nikon and say it's been great working with you, but I'm switching to Canon, and that's exactly what I did. And at that time, Canon had better autofocus for big lenses. 
And so I switched and never looked back, but that's still a painful memory. Yeah. So what does your archive look like? How many photos do you have that are... I, you know, uh, I, I'm presuming around 2 million, but nobody has the time to really sit and count. Yeah. But I would imagine it's been around 2 million. Photos. How much is that? Have you digitized everything, or is there a lot of it? No, you know, I probably have... We probably digitized about 50,000. And they were all done through Bangalore, India, you know, mass uh, scanning. And they did a great job. And so, but as time wears on, even the best, best photos in slides still look somewhat soft and out of focus compared to digital cameras today. Yeah. What do you think you're going to do with that archive? You know, at one time I could have sold it for millions of dollars and today it's worth nothing. Nothing. Ugh. Why do you think that is? Um, just because the value of a photograph is diminished and, uh, there's a value to some of those photos from a historical point of view with tribes that are no longer living the way they were. So there's a, there is a value to that, but less and less as years go on, do we rely on any of those photos in that bank to other than looking back from a historical record. Yeah. You don't think a stock agency or a museum would really have interest in the... You know, the best thing I could probably do with this is bequeath it to the University of Washington yeah. that has a huge science department. They would see value in it. But otherwise, the value of my business used to be the photos I had. I sold a small number once to Getty and made a bunch of money, but that's all gone now. Yeah. But so would be the value of that. The value of my business is me. Period. Yeah. It's my ability to recall with clarity uh, a life of history and knowledge of the earth. I honestly don't know of anybody, and I'm not being arrogant. I just know more about the earth, the cultures, the wildlife, the landscapes. I could sh you point any place on the planet, and I'm either likely been there or I could tell you about what's there. And so... <laughs> That's a pretty good value to be – I can get up on stage and talk yeah. for two hours without notes and recall with clarity the stories and, and what's important about the place. With all of that knowledge of the world um, and all the places that you've been to, is, is there a place or, or a set of places that really speak to you above others that was just like, that, that was a magical place. That, that place has heart above any other place in the world. You know, I think getting into the primitive world, when I say primitive, I'm always referring to the technologically primitive because I think no matter who the people are, they're humans, they're modern, they're modern thinking. And so there's no looking down at a culture, whether they live in mud huts or not. But it is in those villages that I really appreciate the people mm -hmm. because they welcome you with open arms. They've never, maybe I would be the first Anglo ever in a village, and certainly that's been true over my career. And I've never felt tentative or, uh, re you know, resented by the people. And I think that's a great lesson for humanity alone. It's something I, certainly our president could learn that. Oh, God. He could learn so much. But I don't think he's capable. No, I think he could no. learn some basic politeness, but I don't think he's capable of that. I don't either. think he's capable. So I really appreciate those kind of primitive cultures to interact with. 
in terms of wildlife and landscapes, South Georgia Island is this 100-mile-long island that's 400 miles southeast of the Falkland Islands. South in the middle of nowhere, but it's got millions of penguins and seals oh, yeah. and mountains and glaciers, and it's it's primordial personified. And I think that that's one of those places that I've been many times over the years and always love going back, and I'll be there in November. Any countries you'd never go back to? Russia. Russia. Really? Any- I hated Russia. I went there twice. Uh, the people were miserable. Now, I'm not casting that broad of a brush because there were a lot of nice Russians, you yeah. know, in villages in the sure. countryside. But that is such a um, miserable place when I was there in the early 80s. Yeah. You know, they were unhappy. Everybody was, ape- you know, uh, my quote-unquote guides, I'm sure, were working for the government and, and trying to get information about America out of me. And it was always this chess game. It was, yeah. I was never relaxed there. The food, there was no food. And people couldn't even afford bread at that time. They, I mean, there was no food. Yeah. Uh, so it's, Borscht. You know, like, you know, like it. And I feel so sorry for those people because they have not had a good leader in a long time. Yeah. Period. Yeah. No, you know? I, I totally understand what you mean. I lived in um, a Russian city in northern Moldova for three years. And at the time, I, I forget the writer's name, but... He wrote a book, and it rated Moldova as the unhappiest place in the world. And that's primarily, you know, it's 50% Romanian, 50% Russian, with a lot of Russian-Soviet influence. And it was. It was just drab, long winters. The, the food was good. I, I enjoyed the food. Well, but, you know, because if it uh, Moldova is connected to Romania, as you just said, and sure. Romanian yeah. food is good. You know, yeah. they're more Italian. Rome, yeah. Romania is the second Rome. Yeah. Great and cheese. so the people are much more related to Italians, and Italians are good yeah. with food. But a lot of wine, too. But the Russians, they have not caught a break. Now they've got, you know, they've got a president that's personally, I'm sure, murdered people, and this is their president. He's also so. become the wealthiest man in the world. Big surprise right yeah, there. Yeah, right. Hmm. I wealthiest. thought I had met the wealthiest man. I, I, Carlos Smiley? Uh, Jeff Bezos. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I think he... He might be. But I, it doesn't I think Vladimir really... Putin is way ahead of him. But, but yeah, I, I would agree with you. Yeah. I would agree with you. Do you think you were going to run into a Jaguar today, Art? <laughs> today? Yeah. I already have. <laughs> <laughs> Art, what, what's some advice that you would give to photographers uh, getting into the business today? Uh, to be willing to know that it's not a job. It's, it's life. If you want to really do it, you're, you're not going to have your five days a week, and you're not going to have the weekends, and it's, it's just – I mean, yeah, you could do that probably if you're a wedding photographer or a commercial photographer and you're smart. I'm not smart. You know, I love the work. I love the work. I'm not such an economically driven person. I'm not calculating everything, dollars and cents. I'm all about the place, the story, the photo, and everything else is secondary to that. So I think photographers that have a, a degree in economics that maybe balance more of a commercial side of their work. See, I'm only looking at it through the prism of doing what I do, which is culture, nature, wildlife, and that is really hard to make a living from. Yeah. All right, so best airline. You've probably flown them all. Delta in America. You just, has, have, really? you just have all the miles? You know, in recent months or recent years, very wealthy uh, man who happened to be affiliated to the party that I'm not attached to <laughs> have this desire to go on a trip with me. And 
they will, and they've got more money than, well, we won't say that because they occasionally could listen to this. Anyway, <laughs> the story I want to say is I'll take them on a great trip or they'll take me on a great trip. I, I'm really good at spending their money. Last year, I had one of them uh, fly us into the Congo, hire a helicopter that came in from Kenya and fly us up to a volcano. He spent $65,000 for that opportunity. But I'm not charging him money to go with me, but I am asking for business class. And if you can do that enough times internationally, you're accruing so many miles that is a way of flying pretty well the rest of the year. Yeah. So what's the worst airline you've ever been on? Airflot? Yeah, uh, Russian. <laughs> yeah. Airflot. <laughs> There's Aeroflot. a trend. <laughs> yeah. There's a trend. It's called well, Airflot. Aeroflot. You yeah, know, I terrible. just remember so distinctly leaving Moscow for Irkutsk, which is in Siberia. And all right, I'm 5'8. My knees are sticking into the spine of the person in front of me. I can't <laughs> imagine. But anybody close to six foot, let alone taller, oh, even worst, where yeah. could, where could they put their legs? Yeah, I hate traveling on economy class. It's tough when Too you're big. a giant man like you, Gary. I know it's just tough. You, you can't pin up a jaguar in the back. No plane. <laughs> you know, <laughs> unfortunately, free. a lot of these carriers now are having economy plus or something somewhere between coach and business class. Yeah, because business class is very expensive. Yeah, it's so expensive. Anyway, well, Art, I, thank I, you so much for taking the time. I could talk with this guy yeah. all. Night. I feel really oh, yeah. lucky that we. I could yeah. hear you say that to the previous guy. No, we didn't. <laughs> we didn't. Yeah, we didn't. But, but thank the, you for the, the guy before that, though, we did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. good. Two guys. <laughs> no, thank you very much for the conversation. It's really ah, been it's a great. Pleasure. Where can people go to get your books? Uh, check out your work. Follow you online. Artwolf.com. Artwolf.com. There it is. That's the place A-R-T-W-O-L-F-E dot com. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's it, the most asked question. Yeah. Is that my real name? Art Wolf. We didn't ask that. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> what, what's wrong with you guys? <laughs> St. Louis. <laughs> no, but that's funny that people would ask because I hated my name as I was growing up. Arthur Wolf. It was like, I hate being Arthur. Mm. But it's morphed into a really good name. But you get yeah. to make artwork. Hmm. Look at that. It's a good name. See what I did there? It's a good name. See what yeah, I did there? Not just a hat I'm rack. Oh, Not no, just you, a hat rack. You are just a hat rack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you again. I uh, hope you have a good rest of the uh, photography show here in Birmingham. Thank you, guys. And uh, definitely appreciate your time. Looking forward to seeing where else you go in the world. All right. Yeah. All right. Cheers. That's it. To download this podcast and the entire season seven, go to rggedupodcast.com. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes where we drop a new episode every Wednesday. Hump day. Hump day, baby. And there's Stitcher. And there's also and Stitcher. And, and the Google. And Rob's still working on my our MySpace page. Mm, yeah. One of these days I'll get there. You're going to get there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got to figure out the password first. Cheers. Right. Cheers. So, Gary, what's your favorite part of this company? Uh, my favorite part of the company is every single day is completely different. Pretty much. We're working. We're always working on a completely different tutorial. We're always working on a completely different way to present the education, record the education, right. and make it even better. Looking back, you know, at our first few tutorials compared to the, what we do now, completely different. Yeah. Completely different. It's the evolution of us, which you can see in those tutorials, right? Absolutely. It's kind of cool. And now we've made all of our tutorials accessible under 
this streaming platform what? of ProEDU.com. Yeah. No, we haven't. Yeah. Any device, mobile device, computer, you want to stream it to your, your Apple TV, you can do it monthly, you can do yearly. How about your Motorola one, Razor? No, you can't do that. Rob, we've been over this. We've been over this. Hey, we talked about a Motorola Flip, not a Razor. Oh, that's true. The Razor, you can stream it on the Razor. Can you really? If you still have, no. <laughs> What's wrong with you? It's a long list. Go to ProEDU.com if you're not yet a subscriber. Check out subscriptions, watch some of our content, and learn from working pros, and that's going to make you a better photographer and retoucher. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why would you not subscribe? I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy. ProEDU is now unlimited. Get access to every single tutorial. Sign up at ProEDU.com today. Podcast is officially over.